Kia Ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. Tihe Māori Ora. I te atua no te kōra o rōria. Te whare i te nui, te nei, tēnā koe. Te papa e wahau nei, tēnā koe. Te mana whenua o tēnei rohe, tēnā koutou. Te huna mate ki, te huna mate. Haere, haere, haere. Te huna ora ki a tātou, te huna ora. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Tēnā tātou katoa. Ko Chris Bowden tāku ingoa, e pūkina au ke te whānau ākopai, ke te whare wānanga o te ōpoko o te ika a Māui. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. I want to begin by thanking Pro Vice-Chancellor of the Humanities, Social Sciences Professor Jennifer Windsor for coming tonight. The Dean of the Faculty of Education, Stephen Dobson, for inviting me to give this inaugural lecture. I want to thank all my colleagues and friends who support my work as a suicide educator. To everyone here, thank you for coming and showing an interest in this topic. I want to give a special acknowledgement to those here tonight, those who have had their struggles in life, who have been affected by suicide, and those who have lost loved ones. I also want to thank my wonderful partner and fiance, Monique, for supporting me in the work that I do. I spend many days, weeks, and even months away from home doing the work that I do in communities up and down this country. It's a great privilege to be here and to have this opportunity to talk to you about my work and the important role that education plays in suicide prevention and postvention. I hope that it inspires you. When I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about tonight, there were lots of things, and some of my past students will know that I'm a person who has a lot of slides and a lot of information on them. That's not what I've got here tonight. I wanted to take you on a bit of a journey and give you a little bit of insight into what some of us do in the community that's often hidden in the shadows. There are others here tonight who are here who work in the same field as me in suicide education, who are not recognised. They are not seen. They have no accolades. They get no promotion. They're not on television. They don't have their own websites. They just do their job. And I think people struggle to understand how important that job is. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about tonight, I was thinking about that work the work that happens in the shadows, the work that happens in the void. So before I talk to you a little bit about the work that we do and the work that I do, I want to help, I need you to understand a little bit about me and who I am and why I do this work. My philosophy of practice, my pedagogy, the way that I work with people in the community is shaped by who I am. I am a pracademic. I don't know if people know what a pracademic is. <laughs> it's somebody who's halfway between being an academic and a practitioner. I don't quite know what I am, to tell you the truth. It depends on the day. I'm a lecturer, I'm a researcher, I'm a writer, an advisor, a supervisor, and a community educator. I'm also a developmentalist. I'm interested in human development, and child development, and youth development, and the factors and the processes and the events that affect people's development. And these events include trauma and suicide. I'm also a phenomenologist. Fairly recently, as a result of my PhD, I'm interested in the study of phenomena 
and in particular the lived experience of those phenomena. And what some people may not know is that I'm also a survivor. I am a suicide loss survivor. And it's only been recently that mental health professionals have been able to come out as survivors. There has always been questions about objectivity when people come out as having relevant lived experience. When I was at school, I lost three of my closest friends to suicide in my sixth form year. I lost two more in my second year at university. This is what has driven me to this profession and to this area of education. I wanted to study suicide. And what I, rea- what I realised was that I could not find the answers in psychology. I could not find the answers in philosophy. I couldn't find the answers in sociology. But what I did find in education was a space, a space to look at different ideas about suicide. I wrote my honours dissertation on self-discovery versus self-creation. It's interesting how we come full circle. That was many years ago in the 1990s. I was interested in how people uh, narrate and create their own identities. I did my master's thesis on adolescent suicide and my PhD on young men's experiences of suicide bereavement. All of these pieces of research have been connected by the world of trauma and suicide. I am what Jung would call a wounded healer. Jung believed that adverse experiences gave wounded healers great empathy and transformative power in their interventions. Wounded healers are driven by the desire to help relieve the suffering of others, especially after experiencing or witnessing suffering in their own life. There is a powerful message that draws me back to the Māori creation story again and again in my work as an educator. The message is, Mai te po te ao marama from the darkness into the light. This is the idea that life, new life, emerges from the void, from the darkness. As an educator, I walk in two worlds, the world of light and, and life, te ao marama, and the world of darkness, te po. I see a great deal of that darkness, the suffering, the pain, and the despair in my work in the community. I also have the privilege to see how people find the courage and the resources and the light to continue living. A lot of the work I do happens in the void, which is the space between the darkness and the light. This is a space where there is energy and potential. For me, te kore, the void, represents a state of chaos possibility, potential for growth, and consciousness. This is how I see the world of trauma, suffering, and suicide. It is a world of opposites. There is the dark, and there is the light. There is despair, there is hope. There is suffering, and there is peace. There is also potential, growth, and transformation. What is the void? And why would anyone want to work in it? (laughs) I think for me, the void represents a number of different things. I think about the young people that I work with, that I support, those that are struggling with their own suicidal ideation and thoughts. For them, the, the void represents suffering. That void represents the thing that pulls them towards suicide. It is a darkness. It is a promise of silence. It promises to end their suffering or the burden that they think they are on other people. It represents darkness, sadness. It's a painful place. 
a place that represents both helplessness and hopelessness. The void for the suicidal represents suicide and it, and it offers to silence their life. When someone takes their life, they are silenced. There is no more to their story. There is no more creation. There is no more narrative. For the bereaved, the void is a different space. The void is a space that the bereaved find themselves in, not through choice. There is also a void in their life. There is a hole. There is a space. They have been gutted. They have lost someone close to them. They grieve for that loss and they long to hear and see their loved ones again. The void also represents the silence and the lack of support and compassion that the bereaved experience. It's difficult for others to understand what the bereaved need. It's difficult for others to understand what it's like. That lack of understanding means that people don't know what to say or do to support the bereaved. They don't know how to take away the pain. They don't know how to take away the suffering. And what that does is it leaves the bereaved to suffer in silence and in darkness alone. But the void also represents the silence of the bereaved. They don't know how to explain what they are experiencing to others. Grief is exhausting. They don't have the energy to teach others how to support them, and they have no way of connecting with others who are going through what they're going through. They are alone in that darkness. This is one of the reasons why I work as a suicide educator. Education has the power to bring light into the darkness and to bring people together. So what is suicide education? Well, it's a branch of education that focuses on suicide. That sounds pretty common sense. It can be found in many different disciplines, health, sociology, psychology and philosophy, but it's mainly concerned with increasing skill and knowledge and understanding about suicide and the ability of us to respond to it. Suicide educators work in a number of different settings. They could be in schools, hospitals, universities, communities, delivering education and training about suicide, suicide prevention, intervention and postvention. In terms of prevention, we teach people what risk and protective factors look like, how to address these at an individual, a family level, a community level. We teach people how to identify those at risk, how to reduce stigma around mental health, how to promote help seeking in certain groups, how to offer support that's effective and responsive, and how to refer people on to support, professional support. In terms of intervention, we might teach professionals, clinicians, first responders, how to best engage with people who are suicidal or bereaved. We teach them about risk assessment. We talk to them about how to promote coping. We teach them how to plan and, and manage safety and aspects of culturally responsive and ethical practice. It's a lot. And in regards to postvention, we might teach people who support those affected by suicide and the bereaved, what does that support look like? What do the bereaved tell us they need? How do we offer the best support we can? To give you an example of what I do, I'm really lucky you know, I, have, I work for the university and the university enables me to go into the community and do community service. So when my teaching comes to an end, which it's going to in the next couple of weeks, I'm heading off up north to do some work for a DHB. 
and to do some work in a community. And I thought it might help you understand a little bit of what this looks like. So, for example, when I go into a community, the first thing that I might do is work with other uh, coordinated services to identify what their needs for education are. Then we develop a plan. What is the content? What is the process going to be for delivering that education? Who needs to be there? At the same time, I might be connected with a group of young people who are affected by a suicide in that community or a number of suicides. And I might spend four or five hours with them talking to them about how they're coping, what resources they have available, how they're supporting one another to help them find ways to work through this experience. The next day, I could be running a workshop in the morning for clinicians and mental health professionals in that community around the latest evidence and research around effective practice. Later that, that afternoon, I could be at a school teaching teachers how to support students who are affected by suicide. And later that night, I could be running a hui for parents and whānau that are affected by suicide. I also work for funeral directors, ministers, social workers, youth workers, all sorts of people who work in this area of supporting young people and families. It's about building capacity. It's about community development. This is not a fly-by-night process. I don't go in, deliver something and leave. These are relationships that we build with communities. I go back, I continue to support until they don't need that support any longer. I scaffold and help these communities develop their own resources, their own knowledge, their own expertise so that they can look after themselves going forward. All of this education has to be theoretically sound, research and lived experience informed, and based on best evidence. That's where I come into it. I'm a translator and a transformer. <laughs> Not that kind. <laughs> but, you know, it's my job to take that science and to translate it in a way that makes it accessible to those communities. Education is an absolutely essential part of suicide prevention and postvention. It is the key to strengthening communities, to promoting well-being, to building our workforce and capacity. Who would want to be a suicide educator? My students ask me this question sometimes and they say, how do we get to do what you do? And I'm like, you don't want to do what I do. <laughs> you don't want to work in this area. Some of them do. They're very passionate about it. But I think they need to understand that suicide educators need certain knowledge and skills to be able to work in this field. They need to have good self-awareness. They need to have honesty. They need to have compassion for others and for themselves. They need psychological maturity. I don't know if I've got that yet. They need to be creative, problem solvers, have clear perception, strong relationships, and a po to tether themselves to. If you go into that darkness, if you go into that void doing this work and you do not have that strong connection, you will get lost. You have to have a way back. People who work in this area of suicide education are also in the business as transformative education. Our education should transform people and communities. In the picture you can see a beautiful, I think it's a sunset, it might be a, a, a dawn. For me, suicide educators are the harbingers of the morning's arrival. The art and the science of suicide educator is to pick up and enhance the glimmer of new dawns. That is our job, to find that light in the darkness and to nurture it 
to strengthen it. We have to help people transform themselves, transform their perspectives, their thinking, their feeling, their behaviour. We have the power to understand and to help people who are suffering transform their own suffering. But in order to do this work, we have to have a really good understanding of what it means to suffer. So what I want to do now is I want to tell you a little bit about some of the work that I do with people who are suffering. It's not all about teaching. This is where it gets murky. And you might think, is he being a counsellor? Is he being a therapist? Is he an educator? What is he doing? And there becomes a very blurred line here. Because sometimes when we are counselling, we're also educating people. And sometimes when we're educating people, we're being therapeutic. So I want to talk a little bit about what this work with survivors entails. It entails a few different things. First of all, it entails witnessing. You can't work in this area if you can't be comfortable around suffering and grief. Witnessing involves listening, hearing, acknowledging, and showing that you understand and validate the experiences of the bereaved and those that are struggling. It means being emotionally present, being attuned having an open heart and an open mind, this can help people experience what we call shared pain. As Weingarten states, matters of life and death are too hard, too onerous, too painful to do alone. When we witness other people's suffering, they are no longer alone. Being a suicide educator involves being an expert companion. It means sitting alongside survivors rather than trying to do things to them. I've learned over the years that people's suffering is not mine to own. It's not my story. It's not my suffering. I don't take it home. It's mine to understand It's mine to bear for a little bit. I will carry it for them for a little while. But ultimately, I have to give it back to them. And I try to give it back to them in a way that makes it easier for them to carry it. We try to understand and work on it together. Suicide doesn't make a lot of sense for most people. I think when you get close to that darkness, you can understand it. It does make sense to some people. But most of the time, it doesn't make sense. And as a suicide educator, we have to help the bereaved and help people make sense of their experience. Having a coherent narrative to tell about an experience reduces rumination, anxiety, and the amount of energy that people put into trying to understand that experience. I work with some people here in the audience on a program called WAVES, which is a psychoeducational program for adults bereaved by suicide. In that program, we encourage the bereaved to examine their stories, their narratives of suffering, and we help them develop a complex, realistic and compassionate account of what happened to them. We give the survivors a new language, a new way of thinking about their experience. We help them connect with others who have gone through a similar experience to them so that they can hear their accounts and their experiences too. As educators, we help people construct an account that is bearable but it doesn't have to be the truth. 
We're not interested in the truth. It's whatever makes sense for them that enables them to move forward. We also try to help the bereaved find meaning in suffering. Jung says, finding meaning in suffering makes bearable what is otherwise unbearable. Lionel Corbett, he's a Jungian analyst and depth psychologist, in his book, The Soul in Anguish, asserts that suffering can be developmentally useful. It enables wisdom and understanding that we might not otherwise have had. Suffering can change our worldview, our values, It can even reveal aspects of character. We have a choice. We can see suffering as a burden that we have to carry the rest of our lives, or we can see it as something that transforms us. My job as an educator is to encourage people to take up that narrative of transformation. We can help survivors understand that learning Growth and transformation can come from suffering. New life and development can come from the dark and the chaos and the void. I don't know if you know this, but the root word suffer is also the root of the English word fertile. So it is also related to the idea of bearing fruit. Psychologically then, suffering can produce something. It's not random or meaninglessness. It's not merely something that we should get rid of. It's not something we should avoid. In reality, it can act as a fertilizer or it can act as a poison. Depending on the lens you use to understand suffering, this will shape your attitude Suffering can either reinforce and solidify our usual habits, patterns of thinking and doing, or it can open us up to transformation and change. Suffering can reveal a great capacity for courage, for sacrifice and resilience, or it can result in resentment and bitterness. It has all sorts of developmental effects. Suffering to me is developmentally important. I wouldn't want to make everybody go through it, but if they are going through it, to promote that message, I think, is very important. It can deepen our spiritual life. It can dissolve our problems, such as arrogance, and it can lead to post-traumatic growth and resiliency. Suffering can open doorways to new ways of being in the world. Those spiritual crises make us ask different questions in life. What matters now? What is most important in my life? Where is this taking me that I would otherwise not go? Sometimes it's enough to help us realise that we've been living the wrong type of life. That we have been climbing a ladder, but then we get to the top and we realise it's against the wrong wall. (laughs) Suffering can lead to questioning, and that's valuable. Another thing that we promote in suicide education is realistic coping. I spend a lot of time teaching young people and others how to cope with stuff in life. But a lot of those strategies are not realistic, not able to be used, not really that um, relevant to these people's lives. We have to work with the community and with young people and adults to identify strategies that they already use that are relevant that are responsive to their context. We have to remind them that all people have experienced suffering at some time in their life and have gotten through that. We need to ask survivors to explore those strategies and think about what works and what doesn't work. We can't change what has happened to people. This is a big life lesson when it comes to suicide. There's no going back. There's no undoing it. They can't change what has happened, but they can adjust 
and change the way they react to it. We can't change the wind, but we can change the way that we direct our sails. Another thing that we do as suicide educators is that we promote the idea that suffering is liminal, it's temporary. I struggle with that idea sometimes. Sometimes suffering goes on for a long time, feels like it's unending. But if we can encourage people to see it as a space, as a, as a space, a liminal space between two things, it gives them hope. It gives them the idea that this is not going to last forever and it might give them enough courage and strength to continue. The stories that we tell about suffering are really important. I'm going to go back to that slide. A lot of the work that I do is heavily influenced by narrative theory and therapy. Work of Kurt Lewin, Dan McAdams and Michael White. I try to help people understand that the narratives or life stories that we tell about what has happened to us shape who we are, shape our identities, but they also shape the way that other people respond to us. Lewin argued that we can change the way that people view the world with relatively simple interventions. We can encourage people to scrape away the layers of narrative, the stories that they tell about themselves and about what has happened. I've found that over the years, lecturing people, telling people how to change their views doesn't work. We need to encourage people to tell their stories, explore them, gently challenge them, and edit them slowly. Changing people's stories about themselves is challenging. But it leads to changes. Changes in thinking, feeling and behaviour. This is what we do in psychoeducation. We provide a space for people to tell their story. A distance framework to provide them with the space and the tools to deconstruct what has happened. We don't re-immerse them in the pain or the suffering or the trauma. We encourage them to tell their story as an observer and to wonder and to ask why and how rather than focus on the thoughts and the feelings. They need that distance so that they can analyse their own story without it overwhelming them. We then help them step back and reframe what has happened to see and find new meaning in their suffering. For example, helping people focus on the enduring love that they have for somebody rather than on the means by which they ended their life. Or we encourage them to tell a story about someone who had a great influence on them and what gifts that person gave to them during their life. We are effectively encouraging self-creation for people to move from the darkness and the void into the light with a new identity and narrative. I told you I would come a full circle with that honest dissertation. When we teach people how to reinterpret and rewrite their experiences, we promote new ways of thinking and being in the world. Survivors are no longer trapped in a victim narrative. We help them reposition themselves, we empower them, and we educate them to do so. The stories that people tell about suffering are really important. This is something that I've become more aware of in the last two years, maybe three years here in New Zealand. We focus a lot on the first stories. The first stories are the stories of suffering of anger, of tragedy, of despair, hopelessness, helplessness, the brokenness, 
the hopelessness. It's a problem-saturated discourse. And we get trapped into telling the story over and over and over again. And what happens is when people are encouraged to tell the story again and again, they come to define themselves through that story. Survivors may inhabit a sense of despair and brokenness and futility because that is the story they tell about themselves. We need to recognise these first stories. They're important. People need to hear them. But we need to move people beyond that first story to a second story. The second stories and the memories contradict the dominant trauma story. But they're not given much attention. We don't see these in the media. We don't see them on television. We don't hear about them in the newspapers, the magazines. Second stories are about how survivors have responded to their trauma, the skills, the knowledge, what they have done to lessen the effects, how they have coped, who has helped them, what has helped them, and what hopes they have for the future. These second stories are highly motivating. They are encouraging. They are the driving force of healing and recovery. We need to teach people how to tell the second story. Second stories are about change, noticing the smallest bits of progress that people make through their suffering. We need to keep people focused on the possibility of that light growing. The second stories of survivors are often silenced They're not allowed, they're relegated, they're marginalised by the problem-saturated discourse we we tell over and over again about suicide. Why do we need second stories? We need them to promote hope, to show survivors do get through, that there is meaning in suffering. Through education, we can help survivors learn how to transform and transmute their suffering and re-narrate their story. We can show them and teach them how to imagine and then write a second story. I don't just work with the bereaved or those young people and adults that are struggling with suicide. I also work with the professionals who are out there every day supporting those people. We have to teach and protect that industry, that workforce, those supporters. Secondary trauma, burnout, compassion fatigue, vicarious traumatisation are all real. Doing this work comes with its costs. We need to educate our professional workforce and ensure that they know the importance of supervision, of reflexive practice, of encouraging help-seeking in themselves and in others around them. We need them to be resilient and realists. It takes courage to enter the dark night of one's own soul and live with uncertainty And many of the people who work in this area live with uncertainty every day. We don't know if the people we support are going to make it. We and other professionals have to tolerate that uncertainty. I want to finish by emphasising the role that I think that education has to play in the new national strategy for suicide prevention for this country. In September, the Ministry of Health and the New Zealand Government launched Te Tapu Te Oranga o Ea Tangata, Every Life Matters, the New Zealand Suicide Prevention Strategy for 2019 to 2029 and the Suicide Action Plan that goes with it. 
What was really exciting about this strategy was its focus on taking a trauma-informed approach to supporting people affected by suicide. It also talked about the suicide bereaved for the first time. We have had other strategies before this. None of them recognised the bereaved. None of them recognised people affected by suicide. This strategy is exciting. It talks about building a strong system and ensuring that our mental health and other services are compassionate, culturally responsive and trauma-informed. Education is an absolutely essential part of this strategy. I want to talk about just a couple of action areas. Action area two talked about the need for evidence and collective knowledge to be used to make a difference in this country. That includes collecting and sharing knowledge of what works and what doesn't, and making sure that support and services stay relevant and based on best practice. But who will share that knowledge? How will that knowledge be shared? That sounds like a job for education. Action Area 3 focuses on developing workforce capacity and capability to, to ensure the diverse suicide prevention workforce is strengthened and that an existing workforce is built. Who will train and educate our first responders? Who will train and educate our health professionals and others who offer support? That sounds like a job for education. Action Area 5 is about promoting well-being and reducing risk of suicide. Who's going to be delivering the well-being and mental health literacy programs in our communities and schools? Who's going to teach people how to build on their strengths, how to develop resiliency and coping and connectedness? That sounds like a job for education. Action Area five, uh, 6 and 7 are about responding to suicidal distress and suicidal behaviour and improving early intervention. Who's going to support and train our frontline staff? Who's going to train them in safety management? Cultural safety. That sounds like a job for education. Action Area 8 concerns suicide postvention and supporting people bereaved or affected by suicide. Who's going to teach people about the needs of the bereaved and upskill our counsellors, our professionals, our peer support workers, those who offer grief support and help communities? That sounds like a job for education. We're going to be very busy. Education is a solution to many problems and might hold the key to preventing suicide in Aotearoa. I want to finish by talking a little bit about hope. What do I hope that you'll take away from this? I hope that you'll take away that working in the void is difficult, it's challenging, it's hard. We need to have compassion and respect for those that do this mahi. The people who work quietly in the background and in the shadows. Second thing I want you to take away from this is that education is a powerful tool in suicide prevention and postvention. The third thing I want you to take away is that education is transformative. It has the power to transform lives and suffering help people make meaning, find their way out of the dark, go into the light. We need to make suicide education a priority and increase its accessibility to all communities. Finally, I want, to want you to take away the message of hope. We can all play a role in helping people find information, find support, and find opportunities to learn that will help them improve their own well-being and the well-being of their communities. Noraira, Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Katoa. Thank you very much, Dr. Chris Bowden.
for me, that was a very important lecture where you were almost apologizing for being a pracademic. <laughs> and, and I think, for me, the, the reason many of us either come to this institution or leave it is because we're thinking about the university of life and the university of knowledge. And I think a pracademic is somebody who's able to combine those. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll now open for some questions and answers. So if anybody would like to, we've got a few moments to listen to some questions, and Chris will share his knowledge. Um, thank you for the lecture. So this question is not really about the suicide education, but it's more about the suicide and the depression altogether. Um, you talk about the workforce development part of the strategy. As me, as a migrant, also, you know, the census showed it's just going to be more ethnically diverse and more immigrants who might not speak English that well. And then I think in Wellington even, that there's even no um, Chinese-speaking counselors, and it's all just English. So that's actually quite a big challenge for New Zealand in the future, and I just want your comments or whether you have any strategies to really deal with that. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, I think we need to have a more diverse counselling and support network. We need more professionals who represent us as Kiwis. Um, it's a struggle. I, I know that counselling is not an attractive field for a lot of people to go into. It's not that well paid. Um, the study is hard. It's difficult. It's challenging work. And we're really struggling to provide enough people to support um, the growing kind of mental health needs of our population. Um, I couldn't agree more. I don't know what the answer is to attract more people into that field, um, but there's certainly a need for, uh, for those professionals to reflect cultural, gender, uh, and, uh, um, you know, don't get me started on men. Um, you know, we need more male counsellors and support workers as well, and at the moment that's a real issue. I, I don't know what the answer is, but I totally agree with you that we need... Uh, that workforce to be more reflective of the community if we're wanting people to go to those people for help. Um, I'm not really sure what my question is, but um, I guess I was just thinking about the whole idea of um, suicide prevention and sort of suicide awareness, and there's a lot of speak around these things kind of in the media um, now. And um, I guess if you had any thoughts around whether, you know, are we talking about it a little bit too much and that is becoming kind of an attractive, um, you know, prospect for some, that, you know, we're sort of seeing a lot of media um, images of, you know, you know public figures um, who have um, taken their lives and um, and it's kind of seen as, you know, the, the, the kind of, um, they're portrayed and I guess a quite a, a positive light in some ways. I, I guess I've just... Any thoughts on that, really? Um, honest thoughts? <laughs> um, I wonder, I wonder, and I'm going to do it publicly and out loud now, um, whether the increase in awareness raising in the last few years has maybe had some contribution or made some contribution to our increased rates and numbers. Um, I wouldn't want to silence the discussion around suicide, but I think how we talk about it is really important. And the messages, we need to be very clear about the messages that we give people when we do uh, talk publicly about suicide, you know, in relation to it's a prevent, it's, you know, it's preventable, um, we don't want to normalise it. We don't want to glamorise it. Um, we don't want people thinking that the system is so broken that there is no help available. Um, there are some very dangerous messages that have been given about suicide you know, by people who maybe need a little bit more education um, in order to be more effective as an advocate or to be more effective in their delivery of uh, their own uh, information and perspective. Um, I am, am being a bit of an advocate and a champion for these second stories. And just this morning I was talking to somebody from um, 
from the Sunday Star Times who was wanting to promote the second story of young men who had lost multiple friends through car accidents and through suicide. And I said, that's a wonderful story to tell. You know, that's definitely the kind of story we want to promote, is here is a group of young men who have lost people close to them, but who have come through it. And this is what they did to get through that. And I think that's a really positive message. So, yeah, I think we need to change the narrative that we're, we're, we're telling but, um, you know, we can't go back, and the reality is everybody's talking about it. So um, I think just a bit more education about how we talk about it would go a long way. Thank you. That was a really um, amazing talk, Chris. Thank you. Um, that comment, in, it sort of made me wonder about... Um, the role of training uh, for people who work in the media? Um, they do get some training. <laughs> uh, it's not a lot. Uh, we could do better. There are media guidelines around the reporting, uh, around suicide as well. Um, we've got good reporters and we've got reporters who, who need to learn a little bit more. Um, I don't know. I just I kind of think the media could be a really powerful ally and um, I'm not quite sure whether regulation or control or more education, I'm swaying more towards, you know, let's educate and work together uh, rather than, you know, try to regulate and control them. Um, but I think, yeah, some, some media training would go a long way to uh, helping people understand, not just for suicide either, you know, for mental health and the stigma around mental health as well. Um, just to sort of continue from there, do you think, like, not just in the media, there are issues with how suicide is portrayed in non-fiction media? Things like uh, 13 Reasons Why sort of comes to my mind as a pretty egregious example of that. Uh, yeah, and the, the, the research that's just come out recently has shown, like, the impact that 13 Reasons Why had on um, contagion and... and um, Helping people, I mean, when we advertise and we talk about the means that people um, use to take their lives, you know, there's a correlation of increase in how that method is used. Um, I think, from my point of view, fiction and non-fiction, the portrayal is really important. Like, you know, we need, we need to balance realism with um, not traumatising people. And um, I know, I understand the media have their role... You know, they have something to sell. They have, um, you know, they want to push the envelope a little bit to get more people to um, watch their program or to follow, you know, um, their story. Um, but it needs, to, you know, it comes with consequences. And I think, um, you know, we we need to hold people accountable for those for those stories that they tell. Um, I just, yeah, uh, the fictional stuff is is, is interesting. Um, most of the research, the media research around suicide shows it doesn't matter whether it's fictional or non-fictional. Um, it has a similar impact. And so, you know, we have to balance that and be careful with both of them. Thank you, Chris. That was a, a wonderfully fascinating um, three quarters of an hour, so I'm very grateful. I'm just an ordinary citizen, really, but I, I was particularly taken by your, uh, your two stories. I, I think there's so much is, is related to the victim um, mentality and terminology, and, and a lot of people see themselves as, as that. I much prefer uh, the victor mentality, which says, I have moved from one into the other, and when I have a choice like that, uh, start question, do I want to be a victor or do I want to be a victim? I mean become a victor, remain a victim, um, it's really stark when it's put to a person like that, and it's probably too stark, but uh, I think it's got a lot of merit. What do you think about that approach? Yeah, I'd, um, yeah. I think we can, we can help people understand that they're not trapped. You know, like, I think some people get attention and are reinforced to to maintain that victim role. Like, there's, there's, people don't do things for no reason. There's always a payoff. 
And um, sometimes it also becomes comfortable. And I, I really don't like saying that, that suffering is comfortable. But when that's all you know, you know, the possibility of a life without suffering becomes quite challenging and quite um, risky. And um, it's the unknown, it's the fear of that unknown that really challenges people. But I think when you bring people together who hear the stories, those victor stories, or the stories of resiliency or perseverance or coping, um, it, can, it can really encourage people to take that step when they know they're not alone in taking that step. I think that's the biggest challenge. Um, and, you know, I just wonder about, you know, what is a, a, an effective way to promote those second stories? I think if we saw more of them, we would encourage more people to tell them. And, um, you know, there's some wonderful work that happens with children and young people about, um, you know, actually having them tell that narrative and tell that story and then unpack it and then rewrite it in a different way. And it's, it's very effective as a therapeutic tool. And I just kind of think, you know, maybe it's something we should be sharing with the wider public and not just within the confines of, of therapy, but, you know, if we educate people about this possibility, it, it, it might really help people. You're welcome. Right. I'm going to stand and say this. Um, I think Chris managed to make me move from the first story to the second story. And I'm very grateful for that. And one day, when I drove from here, and I was going to drive straight into the sea, I actually remembered him saying, you're a lot more resilient than that. And so I'm standing here, and I'm grateful for it, but I also know it is so powerful. It's just a matter of stopping and listening. I'm not saying I don't have dark times. I do. Um, I've lost six students in a period of 18 months and a brother, and none of that makes it easy. But that message, that one message that the positive is what you walk away with is the other side. The person's gone. You can't bring them back. They're at peace wherever they are because that's what they were seeking. But if you are left behind, then you are the strong person and you've got to be there for everybody else that's around you. What do I want to finish on? I was telling a couple of people as we were walking here, um, I was really worried about this <laughs> lecture because what I do outside of here is pretty much a secret. <laughs> and now the secret's out. I don't think it's going to turn into a book or anything, but um, I just, I really wanted people to understand that, you know, this work is really important. It's not just my work, though. There are lots of people who do this work in the community, and I don't think, um, I don't think we shine a light on those people. I don't think we, we give those people the credit and um, the support that they need to continue doing that work every day. I'm, I'm very privileged, I know that, to, to work in a, a um, to work here, to have knowledge on tap, to have colleagues on tap with experience and, and expertise that I can draw on. And, and um, Stephen was right, um, walking between two worlds uh, between that dark and light. You know, when I go into that community, often it is dark. And, you know, and we do that work. And then I come back to the university and it's a light place here. I love this place. I love working in this place. Um, can anybody tell that I'm lying? <laughs> <laughs> I was teaching my students about authenticity the other day. I'm just saying, I love my job. I love my job. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes I bring that darkness back here. And I have to, so that my students can understand what they're going to face when they go out into this world to do this mahi. Um, but at the same time, I take the light from here back into those communities, and it's a two-way thing. For me, it's very important that we continue to have conversations like this and that the university and the community come together to actually kōrero about these issues. This is the only way that we're going to solve things. So for me... It's two sides of the same coin, dark and light, um, you know, the university, the community,
practice and theory, research. It's all part of the same the same context. So for me to finish, I just want to say um, thanks for coming tonight. Um, stay hopeful, stay in the light, and um, keep promoting those second stories. To stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider. Thanks to Te Koki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded.